Chapter Five of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One week to live. Folsom Prison is tucked away in an isolated nook in the lower foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. The prison is built in a small level plain, barren, brown, and treeless, that lies in the shelter of a semicircle of hills. The gray, squatty buildings are a bleak and unlovely blot on the scenic grandeur that surrounds them. Behind the prison flows the American River, between low, sandy banks. On the other three sides, dotted every hundred yards by watchtowers manned by gun guards, stretches a broad, glaring white line. It is the dead line of the prison, for Folsom has no walls and needs none. Within that line, men in stripes pray or curse as they choose, while they work out the stunted measure of life that the law has left them. To step beyond the line, even one step beyond it, is death, for the guards in the towers are ordered to ask no questions, to wait for no explanations, to shoot, to kill. Many times, on turbulent prison days, they have obeyed that order with unerring aim. Convicts call the deadline, the river sticks. From the second-story window of one of the buildings in the prison enclosure, a man looked out through barred windows toward the faraway mountains whose snowy peaks glistened and gleamed in the rays of a setting sun. His face was young and boyish, but his eyes were hard, desperate, and aged, for he was counting the sunsets that still remained to him, just six. Early in the gray dawn of the seventh day, before the sun peeped over the mountains now before his eyes, his life was to be blotted out. Through the partitions in the death house the sound of hammering reached his ears. He shuddered and gripped the window bars more tightly in spite of the years of training that had taught him that there is no dishonor for such as he but weakness and a babbling tongue. He knew the hammers were building the scaffold on which he would stand for a few brief seconds before a sea of morbid, curious, enemy faces until the world ended in sudden blackness. He hoped they would be quick, mercifully quick, when the final moment came, for he wished to die with a smile and a jest on his lips, according to the tradition of his kind. He looked at his hands and moved them. He touched his eyes, his lips, and pressed a hand over his heart to feel it beat. Hands, eyes, lips were all a part of him now and responsive to his will. In six days they would all be dead clay, responsive to nothing. And what of the will that controlled them now, that consciousness of self, that awing individuality called I, that has its home in the innermost recesses of the brain? Would it, too, be merely a thing dead and done? Or the snap of bolts turning in heavy locks and the clang of a door in the corridor dragged the mind of the prisoner back to the present. The door of the cell was unlocked, and a guard stepped in, followed by a convict carrying a tray covered with a newspaper. The cushions kid swept a pile of magazines from the one small table, and the convict set the food down. The latter looked toward the condemned man, caught his eye, and then with his back toward the guard, who stood within three feet of them, spoke rapidly in the prison language that makes no sound. Stiff, that is letter, in orange, he said. Key in newspaper. Page four, column four. The man laid his hand on the paper that covered the dishes and raised it, as if to see whether he had slopped the food about in carrying it. Page four, column four, he repeated. Then he turned and went out. 
The guard followed him and shot the lock in the cell door. The instant the clanging corridor door informed him he was alone, the cushion's kid picked up the orange that lay on the dinner tray and examined it with eager eyes. It was not until he had gone over the entire surface, inch by inch, that he discovered a circle in the skin outlined by an all but imperceptible knife mark. He pried out the inside of the circle and found inside the orange a pellet of paper protected by tinfoil. In case of unexpected interruption, he cut up the orange to destroy any evidence that had been tampered with, and smoothed out the paper, his heart beating high with hope of he knew not what. The writing was not Happy's, as he had hoped. It was Boston Blackie's. He recognized the well-remembered chirography at once. This was what he read. Cigarettes have often saved men's lives, though physicians declare the ash from the burned paper is injurious to the health as it forms a black deposit on lung tissue or anything else it touches. This easily can be proved. That was all. There was no signature to the cryptic message, but it needed none. Boston Blackie is framing something for me, the kid thought, trembling like a child in the wild joy of newborn hope. With the old chief outside, there's a chance, even for me. He scraped the dinner into his slop bucket. He couldn't eat, but to avoid possible suspicion, it was necessary to get rid of it. Now we'll see what's what, he said. Once more assuring himself that he was alone in the death house, he picked up the newspaper that had covered the food. He turned to the fourth column of the fourth page. It was a column of society notes. Peeling off several of a packet of cigarette papers, the cushions kid touched them with a match and watched them burn to curling crisps of charred ash. He spread the note on the table before him and poured the ashes of the paper on it. "'We'll see what cigarette papers do to the lungs, blacky old pal,' he said, rubbing the ash lightly into the paper. Nothing appeared but a gray smudge. Smiling like a schoolboy bent on mischief, the kid turned the note over. "'Maybe it's the back of the lungs and letter that are affected by burned cigarette papers,' he said to himself as he repeated the operation. His guess was right. As his fingertips gently spread the black ash over the paper, characters outlined in black began to appear. "'Perfectly scandalous what cigarette papers do to a man's lungs, ain't it, Blackie?' He whispered as he worked the ash evenly over the page until its entire surface was a dirty gray on which, outlined in pure black, were long rows of figures. They had been written with oxalic acid mixed with milk and were absolutely invisible until the fine ash of the paper adhered and turned them black. When the kid's work was done, the first line of Blackie's message looked like this. Two six, eight four, six one, six one, ten one, nine four, two one, three five, five three, four two, eleven one, seven three, twenty eight, two one. Burning with impatience, the boy turned to the designated column of the paper. The first of Blackie's line of figures was 2-6. The sixth letter of the second word in the column of type was H. The kid jotted it down beneath the figures. Next was 8-4. That proved to be an A. The 6-1, repeated, proved the double P. Then came Y. Happy, repeated the kid, working in an agony of fear. The next word was sends. Thank God she's all right, he breathed with quick relief. Ah, love. Happy sends love. Dear, dear little girl, right and true always. 
and good, thoughtful old Blackie, to guess that even now that's what I'd want to know first. He worked on, slowly turning the tiny lines of figures into letters and words. As the words became sentences, his breath came in quick, strained gasps, for Blackie's message outlined a plan of escape that could scarcely fail, barring mishaps. The cushion's kid was told that on the following night he would find a ball of black thread in the banana that would be served with his dinner. He was to weigh the end of the thread and lower it from the window of the death cell after dark. At midnight, the convict runner who delivered hot coffee to the watchtower guards would tie a cord to the slender, invisible thread, and at the end of the cord there would be a package containing a revolver, a gimlet, a fuse and caps, and a bottle of nitroglycerin. Raising the cord with his thread, the kid could pull up this precious package and find himself armed and provided with enough explosive to blow out the window casement of the death cell. With this avenue to freedom open, the drop to the ground would be simple and safe, for in the midnight coffee served the guards on the night set for this escape, there would be enough chloral hydrate to leave them safely unconscious for many hours. The kid was not to try to cross the quarter mile of open ground between the death house and the river, for there was no way of disposing of the night captain and the extra guards in the executive offices. Instead, he was to dodge to the end of the death house, where a steel grating, usually padlocked, covered an air hole into the prison sewer, which led direct to the river and was sufficiently large to permit a man to crawl through it. In place of the iron padlock, he would find a painted wooden one. Through that sewer, the kid was to go to its mouth on the river, where Boston Blackie would be waiting, with the huge steel bars that guarded the exit already open for him. The rest would be easy. They had then only to let the current of the river carry them down as far as the railway bridge, where a track velocipede commandeered from the Folsom section house would be hidden to carry them over the twenty miles of rails to Brighton, the railway junction, from where there was a freight before daylight that if all went well they would ride to the city of Stockton in safety. The plan was flawless. As he comprehended in its entirety the road to freedom that was open to him, the cushions kid realized what fearful risks had been undertaken in his behalf. He wondered how Blackie had managed to smuggle the gun and liquid dynamite and chloral into the prison. He wondered how he had dared even to visit the prison, for it was apparent he had visited it and secured cooperation from the inside. If he had known that as Blackie in a miner's garb sat in the prison visiting room three days before, he had looked straight at a glaring poster which contained his likeness and an offer of a thousand dollars reward for his arrest, the cushions kid would have had some idea of the peril which Blackie had faced. If he had seen Blackie in the presence of a guard talking commonplaces to a convict interspersed by inaudible instructions in the lip language, the kid would have had an even clearer idea of what the risks had been. Louisiana had undertaken the task of arranging all details inside the prison, undertaken it without a second's hesitation, though he knew well he was risking a frightful punishment and additional years of servitude for a man he had never seen. That he was Blackie's friend, however, was enough. Smuggling the arms and explosive into the prison had been a delicate and dangerous task. Waiting until the guards present at this interview with Louisiana were off watch, Blackie had re-entered the prison with a crowd of sightseers. There had been a crucial moment of danger when the guard, before admitting the party, made a perfunctory search of the men for weapons. Had he found the package slung under Blackie's left arm, the adventurer would have culminated then and there in swift disaster. But the guard didn't find the package. 
A half hour later, as the party passed through the great, noisy, dusty rock quarry of the prison, Blackie lagged behind, picking up and examining pieces of rock, as the miner he seemed to be might be expected to do. One boulder was marked, not by chance, with a drilling hammer standing upright. Blackie, stooping behind that rock, in one swift motion transferred the package from beneath his arm to an excavation beneath the boulder, and kicked a stone, not there by chance either, into the opening to conceal the contraband. That night, in the comparative safety of Louisiana Slim's cell, were hidden the gun and nitroglycerin, soup, the safe blower's term it, that was to free the condemned man, also chloral for the guard's coffee, and a bunch of skeleton keys to release the padlock that barred the sewer entrance. Louisiana and his partner, who had carried the package in from the quarry at a risk of which they were well aware, fondled the weapons that opened the way to possible escape with a longing inconceivable to any but men with many long years of imprisonment before them. The gun, the explosive, the keys, the keeler for the guards in the tower were in their hands and pointed the way to escape for themselves. Freedom beckoned and was within easy reach. Louisiana Slim and his cell partner stared at each other with glittering eyes that revealed souls tempted almost beyond resistance. At last, Louisiana Slim spoke. "'You just naturally can't be dead, buddy,' he said. "'The kid's facing the rope. "'If we use these tools for our own selves, he'll swing sure. "'Any time we stepped into a joint on the outside, "'the gang would spit on the floor and holler, "'Coppers in the house, and walk out. "'And they'd be right. "'Nix can't be dead. "'But God Almighty, it's hard.' Terrible, terrible hard. Pack the junk up, Slim, whispered his partner, wiping a wet, clammy brow. Separate it and pack it up. I dasn't touch the stuff. I've played the game square for twenty years, but I'm afraid to lay hands near this. During the day, Slim arranged the delivery of Blackie's note to the cell of the condemned man. Then he intercepted Fred the Count, the convict who carried the guard's midnight coffee, and was indispensable to Blackie's plan. The Count was a sleek, suave bigamist and forger, whose specialty had been making love to trusting women whom he deserted when he had stripped them of their wealth. He was a constant plotter of revolt, and was stamped right among his fellows. Slim asked him to attach the package to the end of the cushion kid's dangling black thread on the following night, and to drop the chloral into the guard's coffee. As the entire night's supply of coffee was to be drugged, suspicion after the escape would not center on the Count, though it was obvious he and a dozen others would be subjected to third-degree methods. Slim made no mention of the sewer's part in the plan, nor did he tell from whom the weapons of escape had come. "'I'm with you, Slim,' the Count assured him. "'I go to hell and back, and hang in the sack a week, if necessary, to save a man from being topped. Count on me for my part.' The preparations for the rescue were now complete. With his dinner that night, the Cushions kid received the silent message, Tonight at One. End of Chapter 5